You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, I have some big news. Uh, what's that? I am six miles away from getting 100,000 miles in my Prius. We sure do love round numbers in our society, don't we? It's exciting, though. It, I can't wait. I don't want to waste it on school, so I'm trying to figure out a place that's six miles away that I really want to go. Hmm. Maybe get some ice cream? That is what people are saying. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I don't know. And I was been trying, trying also to figure out a way to bring this into the classroom. My excitement about this is epic. And I wonder if there's a way. And I hope that our listeners might be able to, you know, come up with some ideas on how to use that, you know, the 100,000 miles to, to, so I can bring it to my students. Well, I agree it would be epic if you brought your card into the classroom. I'd recommend against, like, rolling over the 100,000 mile barrier. Uh. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Dad. No, I mean just the epicness of the whole thing. Yeah, that I think your students will enjoy hearing about it. Maybe. Regardless, we're not here to talk about my car for the entire, you know, podcast, although it would be great. Instead, here's a question. Have you ever flipped your classroom? The only time I really tried, I ended up knocking over a lot of desks and kind of hurting my back. You heard flipped in the classroom? Oh, wait, did you? What did you say? flipped the classroom oh no i didn't flip the whole classroom what is okay (laughs) so this is actually where i'm a little bit i don't have the definition perfect i know that it has something to do with teachers recording like a lecture and having students watch it at home and then bring it back to the classroom but i don't totally have it I don't totally have it either, and I know a lot of really innovative, exciting, engaging teachers who are talking about flipping their classroom and who are doing it, but I remember when it first came around, I said, well, I assigned students to read stuff. Isn't that like flipping? And I think the answer is probably no. That's what I think. We need clarity. Yeah, we need someone who can clarify this issue for us, and fortunately, we have someone who can do that. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Elizabeth Miller, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks. (laughs) I'm excited to be here. I am super excited to have you. I don't know if our, well, people might not know, we totally teach near each other. We do. Talk about six miles. You could come to Woburn for your six-mile trip. (laughs) That could have been it. She teaches in the next town over, which is kind of exciting. I think this podcast is just becoming visions of Massachusetts educators. I think Massachusetts has some of the greatest educators, much like Elizabeth. (laughs) Elizabeth, can you tell us a bit about your background, who you are? Who is Elizabeth Miller? All right, sure. Um, I'm a high school history teacher in Woburn, Massachusetts. Uh, Previously, though, I taught middle school. I've been teaching since 2008. I worked in special education for a few years and then eventually found my way into history. And I've been doing that ever since. And I have been flipping my classroom since 2012, so something I've been doing for a little while now and getting into that. But what I'm most interested in and what flipping has sort of led me to is student-centered classrooms. So that's what I write about, that's what I research, that's what I look into, so that's sort of my, my reason for being. 
I actually ran into someone in a grad school class and they said, oh, do you know Elizabeth Miller? And I said, yeah, I know Elizabeth Miller for Twitter. And they're like, she's a she's a genius. That was <laughs> someone who you worked with who just had such rave reviews of you. Uh, so I'm just passing that along. I was like, yes, I do know her from Twitter. Oh, great. I'm glad that the people I've paid to say that are, are actually coming through <laughs> for me. <laughs> but no, I wouldn't say I'm a genius, but I definitely have really invested myself in, in flipped learning and sort of learning all aspects of it and applying it at a couple different levels. And it's been pretty exciting. We've been talking about student-centered classrooms for so long, right? I mean, people have been talking about it for 100 years. But actually figuring out what to do has really been the difficult part. How do you do it? And how do you do it effectively? So can you tell us a little bit about classroom flipping? Can you just switch the words? Yes. <laughs> we can say flipping your classroom. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Whichever way it's easier to say. So for, for me, it came out of that essential question of, you know, how do we make a student centered classroom? Um, especially when I taught middle school, I had all different levels in one class. You know, I didn't have an honors class and an academic class and it, everybody was co sort of together. And so how do you reach all of those students in one room, make it student centered? And the big thing that teachers are always complaining about is how do you do that with the amount of time that we have, right? Like we have, well, we had 42 minutes at a time. So how do I take 42 minutes and not make it about me, make it about the kids and really let them drive their learning? And I, to be fair, I wasn't even looking for flipped classrooms. It just sort of, I found it by accident when I was trying to go paperless one day. I still haven't gone paperless, but I did discover a lot of blogs being written about this flipped classroom thing. And the only time I'd ever heard the word flipped was with real estate. So I was like super confused. What is this? You know, what does it do? And the basic definition, and, and many teachers have their own, but the basic definition that I, I have sort of adopted for myself is you're taking the direct instruction that used to take place in class and you're putting that at home so that students have the direct instruction at home. And then in class, you've freed up the time now to do something innovative. That's the whole thing with flipped classroom. You don't want to just do more of the same. You want to free up the time for students to start to go in depth, explore topics they're interested in. And all of a sudden, instead of lecturing for 42 minutes, you now have that 42 minutes to give them to do that. Um, and so that's sort of what it's allowed me to do. Um, and there's all different ways to go about doing that. So my definition at the beginning was actually kind of okay. Yours was much better, though. <laughs> Thank you. There is an official uh, definition by the founders of, of flipped class, so to speak, and and they really just get to that heart of it's you're replacing a stagnant kind of lecture-based class with something dynamic, interactive, and putting that sort of static lecture side of things at home. I'm guessing the founders' names are not like John and Mary flipped, is it? No, although it is John. Um, it's oh. John Berg. Yeah, John Bergman and Aaron Sams are sort of credited with pioneering this. I think in 2008, um, they're science teachers out of. I believe they were both out of Colorado, and they were looking for a way to expand their lab time and to really get to know each of their students and get one-on-one -on -one FaceTime with every kid every day. So that was sort of their mission. Um, and you know, they're still very involved in the flipped class community, and they've written a couple books on it. So they're they're out there as well, um, sort of spreading the, the flipped class message, if you will. <laughs> I imagine that they're traveling via some sort of like carriage, like the Oregon Trail, pioneering <laughs> yes. their way to flipping around the <laughs> world. So Elizabeth, can you tell us what, what makes for a good flipped classroom? The first time I tried flipping, I sort of just jumped right in and, you know, there's the kind of expression, do you need it perfect or do you need it by Tuesday? And I needed it by Tuesday. So those first lectures are pretty bad and they don't see the light of day much anymore. One of the things I struggled with was how do you capture the magic of the classroom 
on camera. Um, there's something really great about interacting with your students live. And I really enjoyed lecturing. I know it doesn't work for every student, but I loved it. And I always tried to bring humor and connect with each kid. So how do you then translate that into a video? So for me, the idea was to remove that pressure, that it's not all about the video. So for me, the videos became ways of delivering that very basic, concrete information that you want students to know. And then that magic still happens in the classroom. I'm Instead of standing up and kind of waiting for my slower note takers or my kids that are more advanced staring out the window while they're waiting for everybody else, I give them the very basic foundational information they need via a video lecture. I still try to bring humor. I still try to make it conversational, bring in video resources. But then in class, that's where I'm still making those face-to-face -face connections, still asking questions, still engaging. To what degree do you feel like you have to, to make the videos? Do you sometimes find content that other people have made? That's a great question. And that was something when I was initially first researching and reading about this, that was a question a lot of people asked. It really is a personal thing for each teacher. There's so many historians out there that are more well-read than I am, and why wouldn't I pull from their resources? But I think for me, it's student buy-in, and I want my students to trust me. And so for me, making my own videos is important because it's the students, I'm their teacher, and that's what they know me as, and they trust me as that. And so by producing the content for my students, first of all, I can formulate it to situations that I know they understand and can relate to. I can talk about something downtown in our, our community that they all recognize. Um, so I can relate it to them on a personal level, but also, again, if they're entrusting me as their teacher, I want them to buy in. And I, I have found when I assign a random video, they watch it, they'll take notes on it, but they don't really trust it in the same way that they trust their teacher. And I just think that is something ingrained in our students. And so for me, um, making them myself was very important. What do you have students do when they're looking at the material? I'm, I'm kind of the first thing that comes to mind is to me is the potential of a back channel to create spaces for interactions. I mean, what are the different ways that, that you have them, you know, interacting, taking notes to learn the content they're looking at? Depending on the grade level, I've done this with several different grades, sort of drives how I have students respond. But at the basic level, when they're at home getting the content, uh, if it's via video or, you know, as you said earlier, you weren't wrong when you said that assigning reading at home is a form of flipping. It is. You're getting that direct uh, content at home. But you know, on the basic level, I have them take notes, but then I usually have them respond in a discussion thread uh, as a follow-up. Once they complete watching a video, they fill something in called a WISC form, which is something big in the flipped class community. A woman named Crystal Kirch, who's on Twitter, I think she's at Crystal Kirch, developed it, and that stands for Watch Summarize Question. So you watch the video, you summarize it, you know, five to seven sentences, what you just saw in your own words, and then the students have to ask a question. So it could be a question they still have, and then I have that in a Google form so that I, I have that before they even arrive in class. Or it could be a question they're going to ask their peers, and that starts to then drive in-class discussion because we have those questions already formulated. During class, when they're working on projects, we do run a back channel using Today's Meet. So there's all different opportunities for them to discuss with each other, but for me, and I don't know if I'm even answering your question, but I don't want the content to be stagnant. I don't want it to be, I've taken the content, I've bestowed it on you, and now you understand it and you go forward. I do want them engaging with it and talking to other students and, and challenging each other with it. A question that I have is about students who don't watch the videos at home. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with that? How do you mitigate that in the classroom? So that's, that's a great question. That was one of my initial concerns because I am not in a one-to-one -one district. So some of my students don't have computer access at home or even internet access at home. 
so I sort of took it in tiers of how do we solve this problem. So one of the original reasons I also went to this uh, method was my students were on YouTube all the time. So it's like, all right, if that's where they are, then let me get them where they are. And so by putting my videos on YouTube, they can access them on their phones. So that certainly helped me with the students who didn't necessarily have computers. They could fill in the forms in class. They could type stuff in class, but I could at least get them watching the videos at home. At one point, I showed them how to use their Playstations to access the, the video. So I tried to get them wherever they nice. were. But in terms of you're always going to have those students that they're just not going to do work outside of the classroom. And so for those students, you know, initially I, I had all these ideas of, well, I'll, I'll track it and I'll have them call home and we'll, we'll really kind of make them see the importance of it. But what I have found is if you create an activity in class where in order to really engage in that activity, you need to have watched the video. The more engaging that activity is and the more the kids want to do it, the more they're going to watch that video. So the first couple times they come in and they haven't watched the video, so I would make them go and watch it on our class computer while we started the other activity, they're kind of sit there like, oh, I really wanted to do that. Once they did that two or three times, a lot of them said, well, what the heck, I'm just going to watch the video so that I can jump in on the activity. What are some type of dynamic activities that you do to, to drag them in? <laughs> One of my favorites, actually, this was from the first year that I flipped when I taught seventh grade. I was doing ancient history, so I had them do an archaeological dig. So we got these big buckets of sand, and I each group had a different site. So one side I buried like lunchroom activity, uh, lunchroom items. So it seemed like they were excavating an ancient lunchroom. And so I went through all different little things. I had one that would have been like a typical bedroom. And so we pretended we were about a thousand years in the future and they were doing a dig. So they actually were in the sand. They had to dig out the items. They had to photograph them, catalog them. Eventually the group had to determine what they thought the site was and present that out to the other archaeologists. So I try to do hands-on things. We've done with the gold rush, I've brought them outside and they've actually had to pan for gold and, and claim their territory. We've done plays, skits, just anything that really gets them up and moving. The bulk of what I like to do with them really is I do menu boards and they get to sort of pick from a myriad of projects and they kind of delve into what they're most interested in. That helps me in two ways. One, it allows the students to really get into what they want to study. So if we're studying ancient Rome and they want to build a replica of the Colosseum, which I've had them do, they can do that. They can read up on the archaeology of it. They can build a replica. If they'd prefer to perform in a play, read some myths and, and interpret one into a play, they can do that. But what that also does is for those kids that still aren't watching the videos, because it's just that basic content, they're not long, they're only about 10 minutes, I can get them at the beginning of class, have them watch that 10-minute video. We haven't wasted the whole class, then get them into the project or whatever it is that we're doing in class that day. And uh, it's interesting you say the videos are 10 minutes because I think often when teachers start to try to teach a topic, they don't do it in 10 minutes. I would think that you actually, when you're doing a video, become far more efficient in delivering the content. Have you found that to be true? Definitely. I think you know people probably cringe a little bit when they say, oh, you can take a 42-minute class and make it in 10 minutes. Like At some point, aren't you missing out on stuff? But if you think about a typical class, by the time the kids get in and you get everybody set up and you go through the agenda and you start uh, the notes and you answer questions and you pause, the bulk of that really important content that you really need them to understand is usually about 10 to 15 minutes. The rest of it is that discussion that still happens during class, during when I have them in front of me. But that actual, they need to record this information and really understand it, I can whittle that down to 10 to 15 minutes. The great thing is because it's a video at home, they can pause it if they need to to get something down. If they need to go back and rewatch it, they can. I've played around with the time depending on the grade I've taught, but I've really found that seven minutes for lower grades and maybe 15 at most for high school is about how long I have their attention span on a video. So I, I pack it 
And I really make sure that we're efficient in that 10 to 15 minute window. And I give them about three 10 to 15 minute videos for the week. So I might assign on a Monday three videos and those three videos are due on the Friday. So I, I record some of my lectures sometimes as well. It's interesting because when I give the same lecture, like there's always that time where I'm pausing and then I'll like, I'll tell awkward jokes no, or just because no there's a lot of like filler time and I always feel a little bit, I know, yeah, no, it gets really strange. Or sometimes then I'll go off into like little stories, uh, which, you know, it just, it's not always the best thing in the world. But when I do record it, uh, it is a lot shorter and I can still tell those things. My colleagues like to call by um, little stories and getting off track tangents. <laughs> well, I think it's important that we as educators, I mean, we do that. And that's how the kids connect to us on some level. Some of those stories are are great and they're teachable moments. So I don't want to imply that that's not happening anymore. It's just that it's it's happening in a different space now. It's, it might be me one-on-one -on -one with a kid and they say something that reminds me of something and I end up on my tangent for the little group of four sitting in front of me, but it's not kind of taking away from the larger context of what we're trying to get through in terms of content. Kids know like what their teachers like and how to get them off track. When I was in college, I worked at the library and my boss loved baseball and Napoleon. And if I brought up either of those topics, I didn't have to do any work. <laughs> yeah, they, they really can zero in on us. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty smart. It's like that type of thing by your second year. You're like, I know what you're trying to do. We're going to talk about U.S. history today. What, what can you tell us about when things have gone bad? What, what are the, the types of things that, that you know, educators should maybe look out for if they're trying to flip their classrooms so that they don't make the same types of mistakes that others have made when they're starting? I think the advanced planning on this is important. I always tell people, just do it if you're interested. But then I, I have to take two steps back and say, okay, just do it, but also have a really good plan because you are, that's a scary thing for an educator to suddenly have 42 minutes of sort of unaccounted for time and really amazing magical things can happen in the classroom during that 42 minutes. But if you don't have an idea of where you eventually want to get it can also just be a disaster of kids kind of running around and doing all different things. So I definitely think having a plan for how you're going to account for the kids in terms of where they're at, whether it's check-ins with each kid every day, whether it's the kids submitting to you updates, if you're on Google Classroom or, or whatever it is that you're using. So definitely having a plan. But sure, there are times when it fails. You know, it, this is not the silver bullet. This is not the the fix that if that is going to solve every issue in education. For me, it's been better for the majority of students than it has not, but there has always been that class that it doesn't work for them. It's not, it's just not how they learn best. And so that's when I think as an educator, you have to step back and say, okay, is this what I want? Or is this what the students want? Or am I just doing this to say I'm doing it? So I'm always flexible that like, for example, this year, I have one class of my five courses that's not flipped. It just wasn't something that they were getting enough out of their unstructured time. And so when that happens, I do, I step back and I say, well, is, are they going to be better in a traditional model? And if that's the case, then that's how we're going to do it. But uh, I've had years where you have the students that don't watch the video. So fine, we watch it at the start of class. I've had years where, you know, it's getting supplies for kids. I find most of the problems that have occurred are fairly fixable. They're usually a matter of just being flexible and having coming up with a plan for you and that individual student. But in general, I would say it works for more kids than it doesn't for me. How are you recording your lectures and do you record them every year or is it a one and done type of thing? To record my lectures, I use, there's two different softwares that I recommend to teachers. Uh, one is free, so we'll start with that one. There's something called Screencast-O-Matic, which a lot of teachers are using to record their lectures now. The free version allows you up to 15 minutes per movie, which is perfect because that kind of tells me if I've run out of time, I've probably 
gone off on my tangents too much and I redo it for $12 a year. I think it is now you can get unlimited time. So I recommend that as well if it's something you're serious about, but that's been great. You pull it up on your screen and it does exactly what you think it does. It records whatever you put on your screen goes into the video. So if I want to show a video from history.com or if I want to pull up a, a document to show the kids, I can do that on the screen. So, and they see it. So that's screencast-o-matic. The more fancy software that if you have the money is great is Camtasia that you can add pop-up pop-ups in you can edit and do some really fancy filters and things like that and it gives you a lot more editing tools so if you're looking to get fancy and this is something you're serious about doing then I recommend that software I believe it's $99 a year is it that's what you use I've, I've started using that more, but I, I do find myself constantly going back to the Screencast-O-Matic just because it's accessible on all the different computers. I don't have to download anything, and you can download the videos you make right to your computer. I use Snagit when I, when I make videos. Yep. Uh, my yeah, wife uses it at work, too. Yeah, I've started playing around with that as well, and there's um, the name's escaping me right now, but uh, Snagit, there's a competitor of Snagit that just came out with a, a software as well, so I'm, I'm sort of... I'm always looking for new ways to get the videos recorded. Um, you know, I'm not beholden to one particular software, but I sort of go, I start with free because um, we're educators and we always like free first. And then once I know, okay, this is a video that I want to make a more permanent thing, then I might go over to the Camtasia and use something like that. And do you record them every year? I do. So I, when I initially did this, I had this like really sanguine idea that I was going to record all my videos once and it was just going to be there and I would never, ever have to record another video. But when we talked about our, our tangents, I also had the habit of relating to things that were happening in that year, or in that moment, referencing elections or referencing uh, pop stars or music. Justin Bieber is no longer appealing to my students. So those references don't make any sense anymore. So what I have found is I record re-record them in cycles. So you know, each year I'll try to take one unit and re-record those so that they're never more than a year or two old. It can be daunting, but I also feel that just like you wouldn't want to give your lecture the exact same way every single year in class, you really don't want the kids watching the same video every single year. Things change. Uh, those things that make the most sense to students change. I've kind of done a little bit of you know video recording and also some podcasting for my classes. And every once in a while, I'll put a lot of time into a video. And that's like the occasional one that I like to keep. And then I have the screencast ones that are a little easier to make. But whenever I do like a green screen video that I'm really trying to get into a topic I know I'll reteach numerous times. I put a little bit of extra time and effort into it and do a script and work on it. And eventually it, it comes out really goofy anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> I like the goofy ones. I know. I always say I hope that my, my silly little videos are at least endearing to my students because they definitely are Hollywood produced material. But <laughs> I've just been experimenting myself with green screens and iMovie and then found that those those work a lot uh, pretty well to do a lot of the things I want. And you know with iMovie you can just you can even merge in the middle the um the screencast-o-matic videos and it's kind of fun and and students can even participate in that video making process too and start making their mm -hmm. own videos once you've modeled it and learned it. It's, it's a great creation tool for students too. Yeah, I have my students do a documentary on Gettysburg every year. I just give them uh, a list of names of people who lived in the town and they have to go out and find out what was that person doing? Were they in the military? Were they living in a, in a house nearby? And they have to create that story through a documentary. So they, I think video making, I know we're not talking specifically about that in this podcast, but video making has a lot of value in our classrooms as well. Um, Maybe that could be an upcoming discussion we have, Elizabeth. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think there's so much potential with it. You know, I, I do think Flip Classroom, I will say, sometimes we focus on the video and it's really not about the video. That's sort of the tool to get the information to the kids so that you can do all kinds of other stuff. But yeah, there's so much power in what we can do now with uh, iMovie. I actually have this this dream. I don't think I'm ever going to do it, but I want to make the history center sort of like sports center where I have the the thing on the side telling the kids what's coming up next and I'll get yes. some little theme music going. <laughs> This is the greatest um, idea I've ever heard. Yeah. So once I figure out how to get the logo and all of that done, but maybe in a decade or so, we'll get to that. But yeah, History Center, you heard it here first. <laughs> what advice do you have for teachers who are listening, who are like, maybe I want to dabble in this. I want to give it a whirl. What What would you say to them? I think it's fear more than anything that stops teachers. You don't have to go all in. It doesn't have to be your whole class and it doesn't have to be the whole year. Pick a lesson, you know, uh, record if you're doing one small unit, pick a lesson in that, record your video, try it out with your kids. I always think about the end of units when we have those projects and it's like so exciting. It's like, if we get through all the content, then we can do this really awesome thing. Well, I get to do those really awesome things all the time now. I don't have to wait till we're through all of the stuff in class because we have all that time. So if there's something you've been dying to do with your class and you don't have the time, then I would say pick a pick a part of your lesson that makes sense for the kids to do at home, something you don't have to be in front of them for. Try it out. Like I said, do you need it Tuesday or do you need it to be perfect? And if the answer is you need it Tuesday, just do it. Record a video. The kids are a little more forgiving than you'd realize. I think we're harder on ourselves than, than they are when they're watching these videos. They don't expect them to be professional quality. So just try it and seek out other people in your building. If you try it together, sometimes that can help. And finally, I would say if you're really interested in doing it and you're nervous, there's an amazing online community on Twitter. If you go to the hashtag, hashtag flip class. And that's really where I met people all over the country, all over the world, even that were doing this. And you just throw out a problem you're having, you get an answer. You throw out an idea, you get an answer. So there's so much community and so many people on there just looking to help and looking to share ideas that that's a great place to start if you just don't know where to start. That's awesome. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been great. For us, too. <laughs> we really enjoyed it, and we definitely hope to uh, continue the discussion online. Can you tell us our uh, listeners can find you and your work online? Absolutely. So the place you find me most often is on Twitter, and there I'm at EM History. Um, and I'm on all the other social media sites as well, Facebook, Instagram. Um, but that I'm on as at PennyUPress. Um, and you can find me online at my website, PennyUniversityPress.com. It's where I publish my materials on Flipped Class, and it's also where my current blog is. Penny University, that seems like a shout-out to the Enlightenment. It is. <laughs> sort of inside history joke. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's where I'm currently housed online. Um, my old, I did leave up, I had an old blog, if anybody's interested in getting started flipping, flippinghistory.blogspot.com. I don't update there anymore, but I left it up there because there's a lot of good 2 a.m. ramblings from a teacher that's sort of going through the flipped classroom process. So I figured it would be useful for somebody else that might be going through that. So that's on there for however long the, the interwebs decide to leave it up if people are looking for that. Cool. We will make sure to link those to our show notes. Great. Thanks so much. And I definitely encourage anybody that's interested, reach out to me on Twitter. I love talking flip class. All they have to do is say hi to me and I will be their friend forever. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I do, She's love very friendly. About, I do love talking about flip classrooms, about history. So if anybody out there, even if you're not a history teacher, if they're looking to get started with it, feel free to get in touch with me and I'm always happy to guide people. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you again so much. We are all about sharing the learning at the Visions of Education podcast. 
Tweet us at Visions of Ed if you're doing something creative in education. Or if you're doing something boring, you can still tweet us at Visions of Ed. And if you haven't, we're here. We're here to listen. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, and I think that's it. We'll be wherever. Yeah, we're there. And if you write us a five-star review, we will totally read it right on the air. Those five-star reviews help people find this podcast, so please do it right now. I don't know if that worked, Michael, but that sounded really authoritative. Fingers across. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off. <laughs>